Thank you, Zoe. It's uh, good to reminded, be reminded, especially on a day like today, that the Lord does restore the fortunes of those who follow him. Um, we're starting a new series today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the life of David. Um, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. Um, we're going to be talking about the life of David. I, I said last week that we were either going to be doing um, uh, Deuteronomy or we were going, going to be doing the life of David. I don't feel like I'm ready to do Deuteronomy yet. I'm very excited about it, but uh, I, uh, it would be entirely too nerdy. So Deuteronomy is probably going to be next year, and uh, th- we're going to do the life of David. And we're going to do the life of David for a while. And, and, and the reason why I'm fascinated with the life of David is because um, the Bible spends quite a bit of time with him, but also spends uh, uh, is very clear that uh, that that David was a man after God's own heart. And what does that mean? Because the reality is, as we look at David's story together, we're going to find out that David was not often a righteous person. That David was not often a good person. That David was uh, a very passionate person, um, but he was also violent. And, and lustful and murderous, and, and, but also faithful and loyal to a fault. He was, he was a tremendous mixed bag. So we're going to be this fascinating character. We're going to be spending until at least Christmas and then probably a little bit afterwards with David. But what I'm most fascinated is what is this heart that God found so compelling that, that it leads Paul to say, even in Acts 13, hundreds of years later, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And this is fascinating because this figure became so influential for Jesus and his people, despite the fact that that his history was not whitewashed in any way whatsoever. There was no, there was no uh, historical effort to take out the parts where David murders people. There's no historical effort to take out the parts where David uh, uh, behaves in a way that is unseemly or incorrect or where God punishes him or, or where David acts passively in ways that he should be active. But, but in the midst of this, there's still this ongoing idea that, that, that David was a man after God's own heart. And, and what does this mean? And, and what kind of heart are we talking about? And, and can we grow this heart in, uh, in ourselves and in others? And, and ought we to? That's the other thing that we need to wrestle with. It's like, okay, so we want to have a David-like heart, but should we? Because David was just as likely to hug you as he was to punch you in the face. And is that the kind of person that we want to transform ourselves to be? But most and and there's and there's much evidence, and I would agree with this that if David was alive in our day and age, he would probably be heavily medicated. So what does it mean for us that that we have this person who is after God's own heart, but he that he has this deep feeling that leads him to actions that are sometimes good and sometimes wrong? And I think that this is so important with the heart because when we talk about the heart. Um, the Bible is very clear about what this is, is very clear that this is an important part of what God is doing in us. And this is 
from Ezekiel 36, where one of the promises that God gives his people is that he will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That when when God makes all things new, we get a new heart that is like his, that, that, that feels as it ought, that lives as it ought, that the source of who we are and what we do is transformed from, from where it has gone wrong to, to where it can be right and to what God has called it to be. This is a fascinating thing. So we're going to be working with the life of David. Um, but where we're going to start today is not specifically with the life of David, because David did not pop out of nowhere. When, when we meet David, when he's anointed by uh, Saul, as we come to later, that is not the first time that we hear his story. Because, because the Bible tells a progressing story of how God is working in and among his people. And his work with David has origins deep earlier in the Old Testament, earlier in his past. And we're going to start our story of following the life of David, not by telling the story of David, but by telling the story of his great-grandmother. And, and as we all know, the, the, we diminish the impact of the lives of our, our great-grandmothers. And as I... I cannot say the words great-grandmother without thinking of my own great-grandmother, Grandma McLeod, who lived to be 106 in Charlottetown, Prince of Rhode Island. Um, she was a woman of great faith, although uh, complex in many of her own ways. And, uh, and one, one of the things that I take very seriously is that Grandma, Gr- Grandma McLeod believed, uh, she was a Christian woman, and she believed deeply that uh, a verse that the Lord blessed the fourth and fifth generation of those who love him. That was something that she took very, very seriously. And, and, uh, and I actually am the fourth generation of my children of the fifth generation um, of, uh, that, that she was thinking of when she thought of that verse. Now, um, unfortunately, Grandma McLeod, or fortunately, unfortunately uh, Grandma McLeod got that verse wrong. It was a verse from uh, Deuteronomy that says the Lord blesses the thousands of generations of those who love him and curses the fourth and fifth generation of those who hate him. So she kind of got that wrong, but the sentiment was there. And I think that that, that, uh, that uh, my, my grandmother is quite wise in the midst of not necessarily having the best hermeneutics. Uh, so... Uh, but we're gonna so we're gonna start with the book of Ruth, talking about David's great grandmother. That and this is the li- this is the fa- and the Bible's quite clear about this. And then this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, and Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So we're going to talk about Boaz's wife, Ruth. She's mentioned quite clearly. And Ruth is a fascinating story in the book of Ruth of faithfulness and restoration that I believe informs the way that David viewed the world and the, and, and formed how he viewed the God that he worshiped and, and, and loved. And the story that we're about to hear starts sadly. It starts, uh, as bad as a story could possibly start in the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, Bethlehem, we're familiar with that, uh, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
And she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is a bad, in a story about a woman in Old Testament times, this is about as bad as a story could start. Because she starts from a place of, of having uh, not only a husband, but also sons, which were the way that, that security was found for women in Old Testament days. Uh, I realize that this is contrary to current thinking and, and feminist theory, and, and I'm okay with that, but we're just going to leave this as what it is. It's an Old Testament story. And the, and the way that women found safety and security in Old Testament di- times was by being married and having male relatives, specifically sons. So Naomi goes from being rich in both husband and sons to very quickly, right at the beginning of the story, uh, being desperately, desperately poor, that everything she has is taken away. And now the situation that Naomi is, 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 is as poor as one could possibly be. And in this situation, having no sons, having no husband, she is left in the worst situation that one could possibly be. And there is zero hope for her future at this point in time. Without those, she was, without those connections to husband and sons, she was disconnected and she was literally in danger. So with her hope for, for a future gone, it's understandable when she says that the Lord has turned his hand against me. And, and this happens that Naomi is walking with her two daughters-in-law. And she, Naomi says, return home, my daughters. Why would you go with me? And she goes back to Israel. Am I going to have any more sons because, who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned his hand against me. We can understand why Naomi says this at this point in time. That she's looked at her life, she's looked at the circumstances, she's done the math, and she understands where her life is headed, and it is nowhere good. And it's out of kindness and love that she is saying to her daughters-in-law, don't come with me, go back to your own gods and your own people, as she said earlier, don't come with me, go back, I am going to go to an uncertain future, I have nothing to offer you, leave me. It's understandable that, that Orpah in this moment, does what makes sense. With all of the math, with all of the circumstances, understanding how the world works, Orpah, in, in, in a way that is not sinning or doing anything wrong, looks at, uh, looks at Naomi and says, you're right, I, I'm going to go. I mean, we're, this is the only choice that we have. I'm, I'm going to leave. And she does the thing that makes sense in the world. And, and, and we should not criticize her for that. That, that, that is a, a perfectly sensible solution that she, that, that, or, or, or and, and response that Orpah has when her mother-in-law says, says, you should leave. I have nothing to offer you. That Orpah says, I love you, but yes, you have nothing to offer me. I'm going to go to you. But I think it's fascinating for us that David's great grandmother does something incredibly different. And in contrast, to Orpah leaving and going back to her gods and her people, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave or you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. 
And your people will be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I think this is a fascinating picture of stubborn faithfulness. That all of the evidence in the world says give up. All of the evidence in the world says turn back. All of the evidence in the world says quit and leave alone. And the thing that makes sense is to cut your losses and move on from, uh, from the people and the God you love and to the future that you thought you were called to and to abandon all that and to go back to what you know. But Ruth chooses the opposite. In the face of all of this, of all of this evidence that things are not going to go well, she says, I choose you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And I don't care what happens. I'm going to go and I'm going to die there. She chooses love over circumstance. She chooses loyalty over certainty. And this stubborn faithfulness that we see displayed in Ruth, I believe, marked David and marked his entire family. Because one of the things that we're going to find as we look at the life of David is it's divided into three acts. Okay, there's the first act of David, who is kind of the, the warrior king, David and Goliath, the, the, the boy warrior, and he's in Saul's house and things go well for him. And, the, and then the second act of David's life is, is David the outlaw, when Saul's trying to kill him and he's on the run and, he's, and he spends his entire life in danger. And then the third act of David's life is David is king and and. Uh, and all of those go well, but it's, there's something really fascinating that I think uh, takes this and puts this into perspective with the entire context of David's family as we get to the uh, second act of David's life. As the second act of David's life begins, he goes from being in the house in, of, of the king of Israel to now he's on the run and everyone is trying to kill him. There are, the Philistines are trying to kill him, Saul is trying to kill him, everyone is trying to kill him and destroy him. And David leaves and runs, and he's in the wilderness on his own. He escapes to the cave of Adullam. But this is fascinating. When his brothers and all his father's house hear that their brother is on the run, that everyone wants to kill and destroy him, that there's no hope for him in the kingdom that they've got, they went down there to him. Where does that come from? It comes from the same kind of family that says, your people are my people, your God, my God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if death separates from you and me. That's the kind of family tradition, the legacy that turns into this saying, oh, oh, Saul's going to try and kill you? Well, Saul can try and kill us too. We don't care. We don't care about what's comfortable. We don't care about what's certain. We don't care about what we know. We're going to be with the people that we love, and that's more important to us than being safe. David's family was a group of people, and the people that he came from were a group of people that said, if it's not good enough for you, then it's not good enough for us. So they also said to David, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And I believe it's this moment that begins to get us to the origin of the heart that David had. And the heart that God said was after his own. That in, in the midst of everything, in the midst of all evidence to the contrary, and all conventional wisdom saying, forget about it. You're right. This is going to go badly. There's no reason for us to continue walking together. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to leave. 
in the in the midst of all of that rather people choose something different because if we're honest with ourselves and we know how this story ends this idea of your god being my god your people being my people and sticking with us happens to us when god said rather than abandoning humanity to their own devices as he had every every uh, ability to do and every obligation to do and every every all of the evidence of who we are as human beings and it says in genesis that our thoughts are only evil all the time that 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 we ought to have been abandoned but rather jesus put on flesh and came among us this was the book of john says that it that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and in that, God said to each and every one of us, where you go, I will go. And even death will not separate us. Because the truth that we've been given as followers of Jesus is that no sin, no circumstance, no abandonment pushes God back from the fa- pushes us away from the faithfulness of God, who continually says to us, I am with you, but I've done this. It doesn't matter. I am with you. But I've, I've headed my life in this direction. I have no hope. I have no, no ability to ch- God says, I am with you in the midst of that. We live in that reality that God provides a way and God is with us even when we feel alone and even when we feel abandoned and we, even when we feel that all of the circumstances around us are only pointing to our own destruction. In the midst of that, God stands with us and says, I am with you. I am on your side. And then the story of Ruth unfolds as God provides a way, and it kind of unfolds, and I don't have time in one sermon to go into it completely, but it kind of unfolds as a prototypical romantic comedy. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, uh, She meets a dude, a relative of Naomi's named Boaz, and uh, and things progress from there. Uh, There's there's workplace banter. There's a makeover scene. There's a, a funny sidekick that Naomi ends up becoming. Um, and then there's a scene that is either very PG-13 or, or much more adult, depending on your interpretation of the Hebrew. Uh, and, uh, and they get closer, uh, and romance bubbles up. And, 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 and all of a sudden, Ruth, who was abandoned and, and part of this Gentile group that would have no future amongst the people of Israel, all of a sudden finds herself married to a, a, a man that is providing with her, stabili- her stability and love in ways that she never expected. And after the course of a long period of time, and at the end of the romantic comedy, which is still beautiful, you should actually study it, um, I, we will spend more time there later. Uh, but Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. We see this restoration again, that the person who had no husband, who had no son, all of a sudden finds these things provided. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given you birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was father of Jesse, the father of David. And I believe, and and I'm really confident in this, And this is a story that is repeated throughout family histories. If you've got a story that is this good, that's told to your children. That's told to your grandchildren. It's told to your great-grandchildren. And this starts to form who you are and how you view yourself and the world into which you were born and the God that you worship. 
So when David begins to write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that is not only built on his experience, that comes from multiple stories of hearing about this, that the Lord has not left you without a guardian redeemer, but he will renew you, your life and sustain you in your old age. That David has heard this story from his earliest days of like, oh, wait a minute, God was with us in the past, he's going to be with us in the future. So when Dave fought, David fought a lion, when David fought a bear, he wasn't just picking up a brand new tradition. He was saying, this is what have, has been built into me, into my DNA for generations. This is what my great-grandmother would have done. Because the God who saved my great-grandmother is bigger than the lion or the bear or the giant who stands before me. Because the reality of this kind of story is it becomes repeated it becomes part of our history and lore that outsiders become insiders. The abandoned are restored. Hope is returned. Loyalty is rewarded. And this is so important because I believe that our hearts become amalgams of the stories that we hear and the stories that we believe. And I believe this story marked David. And I would hope, and this has been true in my life, and I would hope that this is true for us as a church as well, that we are marked by the primary story of God providing hope and future in the midst of contrary evidence. That in the midst of, of, of everything appearing to be abandoned and looking like there's no hope and that we should just cut our losses and get off on our own, that God is in the midst of that thing. And we do the right thing and, we're, we, and we act in love and we act in loyalty even if it kills us because we believe that justice will be done. Those were the stories that I was told that marked who I am. And most of them came from this book. That's what I grew up on. Because, and that's what forms my heart. And that's what forms all of our hearts, the stories that we hear. That's why it's valuable and important that we listen to and tell each other and read and watch good stories rather than bad ones. And bad, I don't mean like ah, stories with bad content, but I mean like just dumb stories. I mean, there's stories of bad content that you probably shouldn't watch either, but... But it's very important that if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus, and if we want to have our hearts formed to be more like Jesus's or more like David's, then we need to choose stories of hope like these. And, and to remember that we are following a God who is in the process of making all things, including our hearts, new. That is what God is doing and that is also the message that we carry to the world. When someone tells us, why do you believe this thing? Why do you carry this hope within you? Well, there's a story that I could tell you about people who have been abandoned to being restored, about people who have been, who have been rejected having, uh, be, being accepted, of people who are on the outside now becoming inside. And it's those stories and the stories that we tell that will, that will make our hearts new. And as we continue to look at the life of David, we believe it's that stubborn faithfulness that marks him that we want to have as well. Let's pray together. God. We, we want to have hearts not like David's, but like yours. And you have promised that as you make all things new, that you would give us new hearts. So where our hearts need to be repaired, we ask that you would do that where we need to remember stories that we've been told of stubborn faithfulness, where we need to remember to choose trust 
over the comforts of trust in you over the comforts of this world. We ask that you would give us the ability to do that. Help us to remember and to tell again and to read the stories of Ruth, the stories of David, the stories of Jesus most of all, because we believe that it's those stories that will change our hearts and make us and all things new. We ask that you would do that today. And as we sing songs, may these stories begin to take root within us so that they can overflow in our voices and our songs and in the good news that we share with others. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.